Hey friends, I'm Stacy and I'm Melissa and we are teaming up each month to chat about books. What makes our podcast a little different is that we want to encourage your curiosity beyond the book. So how will we do that? In addition to discussing the themes, characters, and a review of the book, we will also discuss what the book taught us and how it inspired our curiosity well after the story finished. Now, let's get on with our episode. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Curious Reader Podcast. It is nearing the end of July here in New Hampshire, and it has been a great month to just curl up and read books. Why, you might be asking? Well, it's been so rainy this July, keeping myself and others, I suspect, indoors. Of course, another way to pass the time indoors is watching movies. Maybe horror movies. (laughs) Last week, I was cleaning up the space around the family computer at my home, and I came across a list in my husband's handwriting. Written were the movies he thought were scary. I gave him the list later that night, and he reminded me that he wrote it because he knows our sons love scary movies, and so does he. So on the nights when I'm not home, or when I shove the earbuds in my ears and barricade myself in another room, he's going to bring out the list so they can have a movie night. Not unlike the characters in the book we will be discussing today. (laughs) Hi, I love that. My family is like that about sci-fi. I like sci-fi light, but they save the high-level sci-fi for the nights that I'm not home. (laughs) Yeah, so I think then I like horror light. Uh, I think that's what I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> well, before I get to the book, um, so, Melissa, do you like horror movies then? Well, I like psychological thrillers like The Silence of the Lambs or The Hand That Rocks oh, the yeah. Cradle or Misery or Psycho, but only sometimes. And I'm a really big chicken when it comes to horror. <laughs> <laughs> As a teenager, I watched my fair share of those usual, you know, like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. Carrie, and I'd often watch them while babysitting, which is like, that's a horror trope right there, right? And I'd be totally scared. I'd be looking over my shoulder, feeling like someone was watching me the whole time. So there was one time where my kid's babysitter came over and admitted that she leaves all the lights on in our house, and she knew exactly where the knives were, just in case. (laughs) Anyway, I think you were pretty silly to watch horror movies. (laughs) But it sounds like maybe it's pretty common for the babysitters to do that. So, but why? Why would you watch them while babysitting? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. And I know um, it, this picture over here in front of me reminds me that there was one um, family that I babysat for, and they lived on a pond, and they had this huge window um, that overlooked the water. And I remember, like, halfway through the movie, I'd be like, mm, closing the <laughs> curtains, like, mm, I don't think I want to look out there. Well, I never <laughs> saw any of those movies you mentioned. Nope. Never will. <laughs> oh. Well... Not unlike the characters in our book, as a teenager, I liked the anticipation of the scare. So I think that's probably what it was, uh, the thrill of knowing I was going to have this really intense buildup of emotion. And then this calming release when the monster is stopped, and it neatly all packs up, right? You know, you realize it's all fake anyway. Um, but I found that as I got older, I didn't like the gratuitous blood and gore. And I think that things maybe got a little bit more realistic and real, you know, I, Friday the 13th or, or you know, Halloween didn't seem as real to me. Um, and then I found that I liked reading scary, murderous storylines that didn't gross me out in the same way. But I still got that fight or flight response while I was reading and that buildup of anticipation. 
So with that said, it's a great time, I think, to introduce our book. Melissa and I are discussing Goldie Moldovsky's The Mary Shelley Club. It's a book full of classic horror movie name dropping, horror movie tropes, you know, those plot devices and character types that pull horror buffs in, evil clowns, abandoned buildings, the maniac serial killer interrupting teens' makeout sessions, the silent masked madman, and then, of course, the cast of characters. There's sometimes a wise guy, uh, the knockout gorgeous popular guy, <laughs> the shy girl, maybe a nerdy guy, uh, the chatty cheerleader. Uh, if horror tropes are what you crave, then this book will truly satisfy. Yeah, I think they hit all the tropes. I definitely I think, that was think so. The name. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all neatly in there. So Rachel is the main character of the story. Her mother has moved her to a new home and a new school after Rachel has suffered a horrendous event just over a year ago. She's attending a prestigious prep school, but only because her mother is a teacher at the school. So there's a definite economic divide between Rachel and her classmates. But that is not all that makes it difficult to fit in and find her tribe. Rachel is struggling to put the past behind her. And I'm going to quote directly from the book here because I can't say it any better. It was like there were two sides of me at war with each other. I was either a regular teenager or I was a monster. And the one I should have been, the normal, happy-go-lucky girl, felt like an imposter. So Rachel ends up stumbling upon this secretive Mary Shelley club. And for the first time, she no longer feels like a freak. Uh, before I continue, though, I am super excited to hear about all the possible topics uh, that you thought about exploring, Melissa, in this book. Yeah, it was kind of the story really carried you. So it was kind of hard to yeah. pick up topics in this one. Um, so I had to stop myself and say, okay, what, what can I uh, research? But once I got researching, it really flowed. So uh, first obvious one is Mary Shelley. Who's yeah. Mary Shelley? What's her story? Why is it the Mary Shelley Club? Also fear, how fear plays a role in our psyche. Moldovsky talked about her own research in this area in a Publisher's Weekly article that we um, link to, and you really, you really picked up on this yeah. on this theme yourself, yep. Stacy. Um, also, horror movies, horror masks, <laughs> ghost stories, drugs, and pranks. Oh, and bullying and clicks. Yeah, all those in there. So I really did like the topic of how fear plays a role in our um, psyche. I had read an article on Bustle dot com. It was titled "The Psychological Reasons Scary Movies Are Sometimes Oddly Comforting." Uh, the article explored the three main reasons discussed in a study that was published in the Journal of Media um, Psychology. And I was attracted to this art article because as I was reading uh, The Mary Shelley Club, I found myself wondering a little bit why someone that had a certain traumatic experience would want to find comfort in horror movies. Like I was in my brain, like, why would she want to watch these? Um, but alas, there is some reasoning behind it. And obviously, also in the author's research, she found that too. Yeah, my first thought actually was, maybe she's just a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe. then I thought about that, that, that experience people have when they go on an airplane. And when they're scared mm. of airplanes, they often go on with a psychologist onto oh. a flight to help them overcome it. So I didn't know facing that. your fears, facing your fears. Exactly. Oh, that. So those are a lot of topics, but you narrowed it down to three, I'm I sure. Did. I did. What are they? I finally did. It seems very important, as I said, and obvious to introduce Mary Shelley. Yes. Um, that's theme one. So theme two focuses on the horror movie genre with a historical bent. Um, and it builds on some of the information that Moldovsky provides in the book about different types of mm -hmm. horror movies. So I, she kind of just listed horror movies and talked about them. But I really wanted to know the history of this genre. Yeah. 
theme three um, is that one that really got your interest, Stacy? And Yay. and I hope you will help me out with the topic of fear and what attracts people to it and what role does it play for us psychologically speaking Uh, we'll see we'll see hopefully i can do it justice i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i think the three topics are perfect for today's discussion uh but before we dive into the topics let me back up a little bit and give some more substance uh to the book and my thoughts of course my thoughts are easy i loved it i seem to love every book i don't know (laughs) (laughs) not everyone (laughs) from the opening gate the reader is sucked into the typical horror story devices right the shadow of someone outside your window first you see them then you don't the prologue gives a quick look at rachel one year earlier and a snippet into her trauma it's it's not all played out there you you get that more inside the book but i was hooked right there now let's fast forward it's a new school year rachel does have one friend it's a kind-hearted gossip girl uh sandra claremont although rachel prefers to pass her time watching horror movies as a means of therapy Sandra ends up inviting Rachel to a party at an abandoned house. Okay, right there. Look, (laughs) the party starts off as a typical teenage party. But then the partygoers hear an engrossing ghost story, which leads to a seance, a whole lot of screaming. uh, And wait, did Rachel notice someone putting something in their pocket amid the chaos? Hmm. Has she stumbled upon the elusive prankster rumored to be humiliating students at the prep school? Soon, Rachel quietly uncovers the secret club. It's named the Mary Shelley Club, and it's made up of a tight uh, group of horror movie aficionados. This may just be Rachel's tribe that she's been looking for. The group ends up accepting Rachel, although not all of them with open arms. Not not all of them wanted her there. Um, And she becomes their newest member. The majority of their group meetings, they watch horror movies together, picking from the most famous to the highly obscure, And over popcorn, they discuss horror movie theory. Outside of the club, no one talks about the club, and actually associating with each other is in poor taste. And this is because there there is an important aspect to the Mary Shelley Club, and that is the fear test. See, each member must execute one. They pick a target, they assign roles to the other club members, they play out the fear test at a specified moment, and the fear test ends when their target screams. <laughs> I'd probably scream right off. Like, it would just, no one would have to be able to do their roles. I'd just be like, <laughs> Then your fear test is scored by the club members. And ultimately, after all have had their turn at executing one of those fear tests, one club member will reign victoriously, having achieved the highest score. This contest portion of the club directly relates to why it's called the Mary Shelley Club. But Melissa's going to share that connection later in our um, themes discussion. I am. (laughs) At first, Rachel is running on an adrenaline rush from carrying out these pranks with the group. She is starting to feel like herself again. But then, something is off in each new fear test. It's like someone is changing the assigned roles. Or maybe someone who's not part of the club is inventing their own role and showing up to play. This book has everything that a horror movie lover could want. It's neatly tied up in print form, especially if you love that cheesy, campy lore of 80s um, horror films. So many of my favorites, um, like being all alone and investigating the scary sound, you know, those were in all those 80s. Um, 
Honestly, just don't go there. Don't investigate the scary sound. <laughs> well, that's in, <laughs> that's in this book. You hear the creaking up the stairs. Hello? Hello? No, don't do it. And then run. Run, run right away. And then there's the one where the maniac killer with a mask just stares you down from across the room. And no other people seem to notice him. You keep eye contact as you slowly move towards the door. And he's not moving at all until... That minute you turn your face and you're about to touch the doorknob around the corner, and there he is grabbing your arm. What? How did he move so fast? Yep, that trope is in here too. <laughs> and let's talk about character names. Freddy, shout out to Nightmare on Elm Street, and Bram, uh, hello Dracula. Even Sandra's last name pays homage to something having to do with Mary Shelley. I didn't so. even pick up on those things. No, Freddy right away Brown. I was like, Freddie, I'm like, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street, okay, Freddie. And then he even, in this story, he they have a um, masquerade party or a, it's not, I don't know if it's Halloween, but they have a dress up and guess what he comes as? Yeah, Freddie. Uh. Yeah, so but if you've never seen the movie, then you would not have made that connection. <laughs> but I thought that was funny that Sandra's last name was Claremont also. And so uh, we'll get into that because yes. you mentioned Claire later when we talk about Mary Shelley. This book, I think, would also be great as an audiobook. And I actually don't like audiobooks, but especially if there was like some chaos and dissonance music to put a bit more pop in the scare factor, that would be pretty cool. Like, ooh. Finally, I enjoyed the ending. I felt satisfied, but I thought it was a little rushed. Um, and I'm going to let you in on a secret. I accidentally, early in the book, read just one small line of the book wrong. And I missed a word. And it that tiny mistake actually <laughs> changed like this whole trajectory oh, of what wow. I was thinking was going on in the book. Uh. So I concocted this like, you know, plot and I concocted, you know, who I thought it was, all based on this one missed word. Pretty funny. Um, so I thought I was onto the mystery, but then when everything was revealed, I was quite wrong. <laughs> and I but I think that made the ending even more satisfying for me because I was so way off. Um, so this is a 4.5 pleasure reading star from me. I actually did pick up on who it was. Because you didn't miss a word. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but I did really enjoy this book, even though I, I kind of figured it out. out. The thing about her writing is it I kept, went back and forth. No, it can't be. Oh, yes, it is. No, it and when an author does that to you, yeah. it, it's a good read. So yeah, exactly. um, it, this was just a lot of fun and thrills and not too scary. Um, so before I move on to our themes, I just want to mention that we are in my library today That's at right. Goffstown High School. And you may be hearing lots of noises because my library is really a hub and my tech department is here. And there are some kids, uh, shout out to Special Ed, who are doing a little treasure hunt. So the noises you may hear in the background are because we are not in a studio yet, but we are making our way there in coming episodes. So so it's not horror or ghostly sounds. They're, we're not haunted. No, I, I know. know all these people. <laughs> <laughs> so theme one, as promised, is Mary Shelley. This book is called The Mary Shelley Club, and there's a wonderful story behind that name. I knew a little bit about the Frankenstein author, Mary Shelley, before doing my research, but the deeper you go, mm. the more fascinating the background here. So let's start our themes by exploring the title of this book and what exactly it means. Yes. So according to the Shelley Godwin Archives, which is ShellyGodwinArchives.org online. They have a lot of the Shelley papers there. Um, 
living in the 19th century, Mary Shelley, um, with her family, Mary Wollstonecraft and her husband, William Godwin, uh, have been called England's first family of writers. And this also includes Percy Bish Shelley, who later becomes Mary Shelley's husband. So it's a little confusing. So yeah. there's Percy and Mary Shelley and then her parents. Yeah. So working mostly alone, sometimes together, they produced a remarkable body of work that includes the manifesto to which almost all women's movements since the late 18th century have traced their origins. Wow. And these were written um, by Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. She's considered uh, the first lady. Hmm. A pioneering treatise um, seen as a cornerstone of philosophical anarchism was written by Mary's father, William Godwin. And some of the most enduring and influential poetry in English was written by Percy Shelley. And then finally, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, is a tale that has achieved the status of myth, haunting Western culture since its publication in 1818. Mm. So the poet Percy Shelley was married to another woman, not Mary. He then began frequenting the Godwin household. He admired Mary's father, um, and he was the anarchist William Godwin. And he began seeing him as a father figure of his own, because Percy's own dad disowned him after he was thrown out of Oxford for atheism. This but, sounds like a whole like novel on all on its own. Like as I was reading some of uh, this, um, finding out about Mary Shelley. Like I already knew we're going to get to the story, but I already knew the story behind Frankenstein. Um, but I was like, wow, this is like a whole other soap opera and other thing in itself. <laughs> Definitely soap opera y for sure. <laughs> so Percy began hanging out with Mary's father, but then he began admiring. Mm. Mary. They would read the writings of Mary Godwin's parents while sitting on the grave of Mary's mother. Hmm. So um, Mary Wollstonecraft, the writer, um, died 11 days after her daughter's birth. So they would just sit in the cemetery on her grave. Anyway, during this reading time in the cemetery, Mary Godwin, who was aged 16 to married Shelley's age 21, Became pregnant. And don't forget, he's married Still to another married, woman. Right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, just became pregnant and ran away with her lover. <laughs> and then her sis stepsister, Claire Claremont, there's that name, yep. followed Claremont them. Claremont from inside. Yep. So then Claire had an affair with the married writer, Lord Byron, who was known as a playboy and was considered to be one of the most desirable men of his time. He later joined the group in Switzerland with his friend, John Polidori. This fivesome and their antics, adventures, creativity, etc. is the inspiration for the title, The Mary Shelley Club. There's much to say about this group and their social behaviors. They were pretty weird, I would yeah, say. definitely. <laughs> I've linked to articles about it on our Pinterest page, but it's the ghost story challenge that is most important for us to understand The Mary Shelley Club. To put us in a frame of mind of the early 19th century, we must remember that they never would have called their fivesome by this name. Byron and Percy were the main personalities of this group. As men, and they were already published writers, they were the main figures yeah. here. Mary was mostly along for the ride until she achieved some fame. She was also not Mary Shelley at this time, don't forget. She didn't marry Shelley until well after she had his baby, and his first wife, to whom he was still married when he ran off with Mary committed suicide then they had the license to to go ahead and get married 
So one day, the group was hanging out together in a rented villa in Switzerland. Byron proposed that they each write a ghost story and that it would be a competition to see who could write the best one. And because I can't describe the setting any better than the British Library does, here's a quote from their website. Quote, the weather in the summer of 1816, I should say it in a spooky voice. Yes. <laughs> the weather in the summer of 1816 was memorable for all the wrong reasons. The eruption of Mount Tamboro in Indonesia in April 1815 sent clouds of volcanic ash billowing into the upper atmosphere. The sun was obscured. Levels of rainfall increased and temperatures fell. The summer of the following year was thus dismal and damp and and with low, sorry, with low temperatures and torrential rain causing disastrous crop failures throughout North America, Europe, and Asia. For many living on the other side of the world to the eruption, the reason for the disturbances in the weather would have been a mystery, but one that lent a sinister and perhaps even a supernatural quality to the need to light candles at midday as darkness descended, mm. and the sight of birds settling down to roost at noon. The discovery by scientists of large dark, spot, dark spots on the sun in the same year added to the growing sense of unease and impending doom. End quote. Scary. <laughs> <laughs> so other sources talk of the group stuck inside and arguing. As young scholarly types, they had intense philosophical discussions, which I think was probably one of their main attractions to each mm. other. Um, one day they talked about the possibility of galvanizing human corpses meaning they wanted to reanimate them, or they talked about how people were talking about reanimating corpses with electricity. Yeah, what a weird gr group. I can't imagine sitting around having that type of conversation with somebody, <laughs> but okay. Well, it was a popular topic at the time, so uh, it wasn't just them, I yeah. guess. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, this was a time filled with melancholy and darkness. People were thinking of weird things, and, you know, if you think about... Um, the Industrial Revolution and yeah. how fast things were changing. People were people were scared. Um, there were also, when you think about the, Mary Shelley and her, her cohorts, it was a tangled web of relationships um, and the strange natural happenings around them mm. and the spooky setting all lent to this competition. Okay. So the group members crafted their stories much like the characters in our book, The Mary Shelley Club, um, craft theirs. According to the Shelley Godwin Archives website, Mary Shelley's original ghost story, which she wrote for the Byron competition, has been lost to time. But it was published as the three-volume novel Frankenstein on January 1st, 1818. It is remarkable that Mary Godwin wrote what many consider the first horror story at such a young age and as a woman for whom many opportunities were closed off at the time. Mm probably speaks well of the strong influence of her radical parents and also the impact of the creative people with whom she chose to surround herself. In fact, for the same competition, another member of this circle of friends, John Polidori, created a story called Vampire, with a Y, that was adapted later by Bram Stoker for Dracula. Oh, wow. I still can't believe I didn't pick up on that. On, on Bram? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Many sources I saw said that the gallivanting Lord Byron served as Polidori's model for the vampire. Oh. Anyway, all in all, it was a period of dark creativity among very, very, very interesting people. Yeah, I did not know that about the Dracula so part of the story. So that, that's really interesting. Yeah, I just think this small little group, so yeah. much came out of them yep. that has lasted for centuries, a couple centuries. 
We know a lot about the creation of these stories in this group of literati because they documented their activities through letters and diaries, and that's that's really unusual. Mm. Um, those primary sources, many of which have been digitized and placed on the internet, are available for you to see. Okay, that was a lot. So Hard. I wonder if they documented all that too because they, you know, came from you know, literature and in the written form that they knew how important it was to document those things. So, yeah, I I think people were more diary likely to be diary writers back then. And if you did have that education, Mm -hmm. you would certainly be writing in the diary, both men and women. Um, Anyway, so let's now move on to theme two. Um, I hope that you horror fans, not me, (laughs) took notes as you read our book (laughs) and listed the flicks that Moldovsky mentioned. I'm going to run through some of of the best horror flicks of all time. There were a lot of them. And I I will actually read a couple of them. Um, At least read them. We'll see if I'll watch them. Um, So anyway, theme two is horror movies. Moldovsky talked about how she did research on the top horror movies of all time to write her book. She wrote these into the book, even if she hadn't seen them. So I decided to go back and trace the history of horror movies decade by decade to give our listeners and the two of us, Stacey, some Mm. sense of how the genre developed. So let's start at the beginning. First, you must know that moving images were not around until Edward Moybridge photographed a galloping horse in 1878 to prove that some point mid-stride the horse has all feet off the ground so i actually remember uh learning about that or at least it was referenced in one of our other podcast books the electric kingdom yeah i was like hey i remember that from the electric kingdom (laughs) it's funny when when you start reading and paying attention and being curious how many things how many things connect yeah um that was actually to settle a bet which i thought was kind of interesting so (laughs) um somebody uh asked Moybridge, who the photographer to to figure out a way to to prove ah that. So, so look at that bets contest it's amazing how some <laughs> of our stuff has come has come out <laughs> so anyway from Moybridge's sequential photos he decided to create a machine called a zoo gyroscope in 1879 to listen to those dates so 1878 he did the sequential images 1879 put his images on a cylinder, which was somewhat shaped like the carousel of a slide projector. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm dating myself because we don't really use those anymore. Um, but some of you, I'm sure, know what that's like. Yeah. Um, so then at the same time in the late 19th century, others were starting to experiment with moving pictures. And it was Thomas Edison, through a series of inventions, who hosted first public screenings of films. Um, he made them and showed them in small venues beginning in 1894. Um, I think Edison came he up did. in our last podcast. Yes, he too. did. Yeah. Yes. So what comes is it yeah, keeps coming talking around. About um, I think um, like plastic jewelry, right? Was in I thought Edison came up into that as well. Like there was something with I don't know. He was a very busy yeah. guy. <laughs> Lots going on in the 19th century. Um, so let's move to the introduction of the first horror movie because that's where why we're here. So that was 1896. So remember, it was very very early in the history of film. So Edison begins showing things in 1894, and then 1896 we have the first horror movie. This was way before we had real movie theaters, what we consider a movie theater yeah. now. So French filmmaker George Méliès should be considered the founder of the genre, creating the first movie to use special effects to scare an audience. His first movie was Le, Ma- Le Manoir du Diable. I'm testing my French class. Yeah. <laughs> the House of the Devil. 
It is a short three-minute piece, and it's available on YouTube. I've linked to it for you. Two men in elegant hats and swords come up against a man. Oh, I should use spooky voice for this one. Yes. yes. (laughs) Two men in elegant hats and swords come up against a man dressed in black who turns into a bat. One guy runs away. The other stays and is terrorized by creatures. The supernatural man summons ghosts, skeletons and witches, and he seems to be assisted by a hunchback in his shenanigans. He fights with the elegant man until this devil is chased away with a cross that the elegant man finds hanging on the wall. Why did the devil have a cross in his house? Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) It was a bit corny, um, but I found this short piece to be brilliantly entertaining when looked at from a historical perspective. We all know that there are many horror movies that feature some corniness, and we're going to get to some of them soon. I was so excited by this, I, I called my 18-year-old over and I said, take a look. And when I showed it to her, she just laughed and laughed. And then my mother, from a totally different perspective, different generation, said, wow, people must have really been scared back then when they saw wow. this. Wow. It's interesting to see the two, the the different generations and how they view that first horror film yeah seriously (laughs) but anyway i think it's absolutely wonderful i'm gonna watch it again and again and i have i'm also going to seek more films from the 1890s on youtube i'm Mm -hmm. so very intrigued yes so george melies is known for his sci-fi movie a trip to the moon and that may be the one that you've heard about Mm. if you don't know you may remember that a tribute was paid to him in the recent movie hugo relatively recently uh, where ben kingsling Kingsley played the famed director. I loved researching Milliers and his process. According to a crash test history video about Milliers, the filmmaker wrote in his autobiography about how he discovered special effects. One day, his motion picture camera got stuck, so he hit it to get it to work again. <laughs> when he developed the film, he saw a street scene that skipped and jumped to brand new action at the point when he had hit the camera. Things disappeared and new things all of a sudden appeared. Ah. This gave him the idea for the House of the Devil. So brilliant. Milliers made over 500 films in his lifetime and was a true pioneer in film and in what later became several genres of film. Such a fascinating wow. guy. Interesting. I didn't... Hmm. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't place him at first. I mean, 500, uh, that's like a... That's a big number. Well, and to be, to do sci-fi and horror. horror. Yeah. Just amazing. Which I guess, you know, leads to something like Aliens, right? That's actually one of the, you, you know, uh, it's a horror and sci-fi kind of movie genre together. So Well, know. and we weren't even thinking of genres right? back then. Yeah. You know, he just, he kind of invented them. Hmm. Um, we have a lot to cover here, so I'm going to move on. I could talk about him for a long time, <laughs> but the first feature-length film was The Story of the Kelly Gang in 1906. And sure enough, two years later, it was followed by the first feature-length horror film, which was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. By this time, we had theaters in which to show films. Unfortunately, there are no known copies of that particular Mm. movie. But a lot of these old films are turning up. Mm -hmm. um, And I remember reading that they were finding some actually in Brazil in vaults down there. So I am hopeful that we will find Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the original. Um, But anyway, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari was next. And then the movie Nosferatu, which I have actually seen but I don't remember. I do remember enjoying it. It's considered to be one of the greatest movies of all time by some. I've never even heard of that movie. It was a silent oh. movie, but it was ah. really good. And I've linked to that 
on YouTube from our Pinterest page. It's a retelling of Dracula and influenced a lot of later films. Each generation thereafter developed new ideas for horror. New directors and new audiences were seeking different thrills. In the 1930s and 1940s, monsters dominated the genre. This is when the movie version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was born in the 1931 Boris Karloff classic. The Dracula classic with Bela Lugosi was born at this time, too. As was a remake of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They were already making huh. remakes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Remake already. The Invisible Man with Claude Rains okay. is another classic yep. from this time. And this has recently been remade. Yep. The picture keeps coming up everywhere and it keeps scaring the bejesus out of me. <laughs> <laughs> the actors I'm mentioning now made their careers playing monsters, which is a fascinating of the uh, aspect of the horror yeah. genre, I think. Um I also want to mention the 1930s mini of Edgar Allan Poe's stories were turned into movies, which I find intriguing because I mm-hmm. just love Poe. And we, here we see directors, you know, right from the very beginning, returning to literature for yeah. sources, as they do for all movies nowadays. Wow. Lon Chaney, another famous monster actor, began playing the Wolfman in the 40s. In addition to Karloff and Lugosi continuing sequel monster movies, the 40s also brought us the beginning of the psychological horror that I like. Cat people, supposedly, can be considered the first scary psychological thriller about a woman who believes she's descended from cat people and has murderous tendencies. And I am going to look for this particular okay, that is That is strange, but strange enough that I think I would possibly want to see that as well. Yeah, let's see if I can make it through that one. <laughs> then we'll go to the 1950s. Horror leaned towards exploring the modern world. It was horror with a sci-fi tinge, exploring themes related to technology mm-hmm. and aliens. Mm. Um, people were Back starting then. to believe that they yeah. saw aliens. Um, the audiences tended to be younger. Teenagers were looking forward rather than to the gothic horror of the past in the 19th century. Creature features such as Godzilla and the creature from the Black Lagoon Mm. were also popular. And the word blockbuster was first used at this time to describe these movies to which the teenagers flocked. Advertising on the new medium of television reached wide audiences and enticed them to take their dates to the big screen theater or to the drive-in. The theory was if you scare your female date, she will cuddle closer to you. (laughs) Which actually played out in this book as well. (laughs) There was a small scene of that as well. She did a great job with that, but oi. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, director Alfred Hitchcock, master of horror, who I'm sure most of you have heard Mm -hmm. of, if not run out and see an Alfred Hitchcock movie right now. (laughs) He first arrived in Hollywood from England about a decade before this, but he made some of his best known films in the 1960s. He brought a psycho in the birds at this time. He was a master at working with audience emotions. And I want to play a clip I found for you of this master of cinema talking about how to build the tension of a horror audience. I've always found Hitchcock a little hard to understand. So I've provided the following clip as a video on our Pinterest page, too, in in case you can't make it Mm. out here. Um, But all of this ties in, Stacey, to what you were talking about and what attracts you to horror. horror. So here's a little Mm. clip. Four people are sitting around a table talking about baseball, whatever you like. Five minutes of it, very dull. Suddenly, a bomb goes off, blows the people to smithereens. What do the audience have? Ten seconds of shock. Now, take the same scene. 
and tell the audience there is a bomb under that table and will go off in five minutes. Well, the whole emotion of the audience is totally different because you've given them that information that in five minutes' time, that bomb will go off. Now the conversation about baseball becomes very vital because they're saying to you, don't be ridiculous, stop talking about baseball, there's a bomb under there. You've got the audience working. Now the only difference is, although I've been guilty of, in the picture sabotage of making this error, but I've never made it since, the bomb must never go off. <laughs> because if you do, you work that audience into a state and then they'll get angry because you haven't provided them with any relief. And that's almost a must. So a foot touches the bomb, somebody looks down and says, my God, a bomb, out of the window, then it goes on, just in time. So in the 1970s, The Exorcist came to the screen. And it may be the most terrifying of all time, according to some critics. I am deathly afraid to watch that one for sure. <laughs> but it influenced the genre in the direction of terrifying movies. Yeah. Um, the silliness of the 50s, what they called B-movies, was gone with movies such as Carrie, The Omen, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Halloween. Mm-hmm. Then there are the slasher movies such as Sleepaway Camp, the likes of which blossomed in the 1980s. Some cite this particular one as the worst <laughs> horror movie of all time. <laughs> I've watched very few horror movies in my lifetime, but somehow I caught this one. I had heard that it was filmed at my sleepaway camp, which when ah. I was doing research for this, I learned it wasn't. Ah. Um, but I think that's why I, I caught it. because I oh. And it actually looked like my camp. So I'm wondering if all camps look look the same look at the, the time. <laughs> the same format. <laughs> same format. Um, so anyway, at this time, there was also Nightmare on Elm Street, yep. which was the breakout horror movie, I would say, for the 80s generation. So. Um, horror movies like The Fly and The Shining stood out for the stories that they told. The 1990s then brought us Silence of the Lambs, which won five Academy Awards for its portrayal of a serial killer named Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. by actor who is very well known, Anthony Hopkins. So he wasn't making his reputation on playing in a horror movie. He already had a reputation, unlike the monster guys from earlier seven and six cents actually i really really like six cents i like six cents also um, they brought us more psychological thrills mm-hmm. as we approached the new millennium finally this is a lot the 21st century has brought movies made for internet distribution while in the past non-horror watchers knew about the big titles in the genre i must say that i am not familiar with any of the movies that i read about from this time period They're often produced cheaply and quickly by new talents who do not need Hollywood to break in to get their movies shown and appreciated. I was just dipping a toe into this fascinating (laughs) genre. Um, but there's so much. (laughs) I do have a new appreciation for it. And and I, you know, kidding aside, I do think I'm going to try to watch it with a a new a new eye Mm. um, and, and an open mind. Um, For those interested, I highly recommend British writer Karina Wilson's website for diving more into this history of horror. Gave me a lot to think about. While I based much of what I said here on Ms. Wilson's website, of course, you can find the other websites I examined to answer some of my own questions on the Pinterest site. Maybe they'll answer some of yours, too. 
So Stacy, you mentioned to me that this book got you interested in the idea of fear and our psyches. And yeah. as I was writing this horror section, fear rose to the top. While early movies were experimenting with the medium, later decades reflected the fears of Americans at a given time, from fear of the unknown to fear of rapid change. Audiences sought to examine their fears through the movies. Alfred Hitchcock's clip about building tension addressed how audiences need a pressure valve to mm. release fear. But why do we seek this kind of fear in the first place? Yeah, and, and the seeking it is because it's like my boys tell me they, they love horror films. And I'm like why is there something wrong with you you know no i don't know so i'm thinking we're about to learn the answer to that question as we move into our final theme today okay melissa what have you learned about fear and why we like it okay so theme three fear you found some good articles on the topic, Stacey. Thank so thank you. you. That got me started. <laughs> One you pointed out to me is a recent Finnish study that mapped neural activity while people watched horror movies. MRAs on MRIs, sorry, on subjects um, showed that our brains are constantly waiting for threats and horror movies enhance the brain's response, wow. stimulating our excitement as great directors such as Alfred Hitchcock sought to do. In other words, fear stimulates psychological arousal, and horror films are great at providing us that stimulation. Hmm. That flight or fight response produces a natural high. There's much research being done on what happens to our brain chemistry in scary situations. Um, in an Atlantic article titled, Why Do Some Brains Enjoy Fear?, um, we learn about how the brain releases dopamine, adrenaline, and endorphins when someone is frightened. And people react in different ways mm. to these hormones in their system. So okay. while I may not like the horror movies, other people might respond to those hormones in a different way. Those who enjoy this flood of chemicals get an uplifting kick when they know that they are truly safe. They're not really fighting for their lives. Haunted houses are really good at entertaining mm. our us because our senses are on fire, but people know they're not fighting. The smells and sights and sounds activate the fear in our brains, which is then tempered by the idea that you are truly, truly safe. This relates way back to early on when you were telling us you would like an audio. <laughs> to play that scary music. Yeah, playing the scary music. Mm -hmm. That sound does indeed enhance the fear yeah. factor. And when you're in yeah. a haunted house, think, um, I remember we used to do haunted houses for kids where they would stick their hands in oh, like peeled the, grapes. And yeah. They were told they were eyeballs. Like but, cold spaghetti and it was like brains. And So yeah. the more those haunted houses can touch all your senses, the more scared you'll yeah. be. So what's the actual mechanism for the flum of flood of chemicals and all that because whenever i i had i did well in science but i struggled because i always asked why 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 <laughs> so i'm like okay this happens but why does it happen the fear response starts in a part of the brain called the amygdala this activates our hormones our nerves and prepares us to fight or flee the brain becomes and, and this is a quote the brain becomes hyper alert pupils dilate the bronchi dilate and breathing accelerates. Heart rate and blood pressure rise. Blood flow and stream, um, and there's a uh, blood flow and stream of glucose to the skeletal muscles increases. Mm. Organs um, are not vital in survival. Um, so such organs such as the gastrointestinal system slow down. Um, and then parts of the brain called the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex become involved. So we're primed to go. 
basically. But the hippocampus and prefrontal cortex work together to give us some context and slow us down. If the context is entertainment, these parts of the brain dampen the amygdala's work. Basically, our thinking brain calms down our emotional brain. Wow. So much work is being done in this area. I haven't even really scratched the surface, um, but have mentioned highlights just for our our purposes to explain this a little Mm -hmm. bit and to answer our question, because you should always begin research by asking questions. So our question was, why do we like fear? I was also interested to find out that there's a name for the idea of enjoying fear, enjoying horror movies, visiting haunted houses, playing games, or having your belly drop out (laughs) at an amusement park ride. It's called recreational fear. According to researchers here, there's a fine line between an unpleasant experience and a fun one. Again, Hitchcock's description of how he brings audiences to the edge of their fear and then gives them release shows his innate understanding of this. According to one researcher, there seems to be a sweet spot where enjoyment is maximized. In other words, um, an article that questioned this researcher states, when participants were not scared enough, they did not enjoy the experience. But when they were too scared, they also did not enjoy it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, you got to be really talented to really get that balance, I think. I think so. You know, I actually do enjoy being scared. Um, and I could recognize that as I read this book, that I could feel excitement in certain parts. And I've also recognized it in other suspenseful, scary movies or situations like a haunted trail walk. I went on one of those in October. Um, but when a movie goes too far, I'm completely turned off. So I, you know, I, I think that it's interesting that, yeah, if there's something else involved in it that maybe throws me over the edge, I'm like, oh, no, that's just now I'm turned off. I don't want to. And maybe that's why I don't watch scary movies as much anymore, because I feel like it turned to a part that wasn't just scary. It's just gory. I don't like that. Yeah. And I don't like the feeling of being scared. So this book did not scare me. It was just exciting. I don't know. So I have more research to do. I've got more <laughs> questions. So. Exactly what does scared mean? So maybe that's it, too. Like, what if, when I'm saying scared, what do I really mean by that? Is it what we're thinking about? Or is it just like... Oh, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, more like this anticipation. I don't know what's going on. Well, and why do I not react to chemicals the way other people do? Hmm. So, yeah, there's more There's yeah. more research to be done here, for sure. <laughs> so another interesting factor that studies have mentioned is self-satisfaction, as in, yeah, I made it through that movie. I thought I would too, be too scared, but I did it. That's how I felt after the um, haunted trail walk, because I really didn't want to do it. And then at the end, I was like, yeah, I did it. I conquered this. (laughs) I could live without conquering. (laughs) But finally, the idea of someone taking a scary date to a movie, well, it's more than just the idea that the couples will seek each other for protection. It's more than that cuddle factor um, that I mentioned when discussing 50s movies Mm. earlier. So experiencing something scary with another person helps us bond as everyone watching experiences that flush of hormones that I mentioned earlier. Fascinating information as usual. And I am heading off for a long weekend, um, but because of this discussion, I've decided to grab a few additional scary horror books to bring along with me. So when I get back to the library, I'm going to pull a few of those out. Um, You know, who needs a romantic beach read? (laughs) Horror is where it's at. Do you have some in mind (laughs) that you're going to pick? Well, there's... I put you on the spot. I know. There was one. It's called The Project. uh, And so it's actually, I think, a little bit about a cult. And, you know, there's a murder and she she infiltrates this cult to find out. I don't know. That's kind of interesting to me. I love I think there's cult some scary, stuff. Yeah. That's, you know, so 
it says there's some horror in there. You know, I think it's suspenseful and scary enough for me then. Yeah. Well, I might get brave and pick up a Stephen King. Ah. Let's see. Now, Stephen King, I know we're, we're getting a little long here, but that was another one. And I had a, um, a friend, um, actually, she, she lives in um, Goffstown still, but we would watch um, Stephen King and eat our Ben and Jerry's. Like, that was what we did when I would sleep over. It's like, okay, so Cujo, and we got our Ben and Jerry's, and lights all off, and let's watch it. And yeah, so. Ben and Jerry's it. now has new animal free flavors. Oh, I just heard that this morning. Interesting. Just to know mm. something. So. so, yeah. Well, a time to wrap this up, I think. <laughs> so a big thank you for listening today. Remember, the Curious Reader podcast can be found on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and even for free on audible.com. So make sure you download an episode or two or three. And don't forget, liking and subscribing helps others discover this podcast. Oh, and we passed 500 this week. Oh, yay! So just need to point that out. Please click that little heart or give us a thumbs up to share the love of reading. That's right. So Melissa and I will be back next month with a book that features a little bit of fantasy and a whole lot of mystery wrapped into a story about harnessing your potential and finding your place in the world. See, Ezekiel Blast has a superpower, or a micropower, if you will. He can find lost things. The problem is most people think he steals them. But when the police ask for his help in investigating the disappearance of a little girl, he may have his chance to redeem himself. So join us in August as the Curious Reader podcast discusses Master Storyteller Orson Scott Card's book, Lost and Found. So thank you for listening. And remember, the Curious Reader seeks understanding beyond the book.